0: It's like looking at a Gothic cathedral. It's beautiful in its structure, in its intricacy, in its depth, and its balance. On the other hand, if you've ever tried to open up the Summa and actually read Aquinas, you may find yourself um, sympathizing a little bit with the humanists.
1: Welcome to another explosive episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, he's Ken Hensley, we are with the Coming Home Network, and if you don't know much about what that is, uh, essentially we're uh, an apostolate, a network of people who have all come from various backgrounds, or are in the process of coming from various backgrounds toward the Catholic faith, and uh, because we were all something else first, we have a kind of a unique understanding of the various ideas that uh, one might wrestle with on one's way into the church. And one of those is the whole question of what was the Reformation? Why did it happen? And that's what we've been on lately. Again, come visit us at chnetwork.org, and especially visit our online community, community.chnetwork.org. Ken Hensley, are you ready to dig back into the Reformation?
0: I believe so. Good to see you, Matt. And uh, I, I, I approve of your choice of adjective this week, an explosive episode Anyway, yeah, it, it's good to see you. Uh, let me kind of recap quickly then. In our last epi- episode, we looked at that first question. What was it? And what we mean by that is what was it essentially? What was it at its heart? Okay? And what we saw was that at its heart, the Protestant Reformation of the early 16th century, it wasn't so much a reformation of the Catholic Church as it was a revolt against the very idea that there existed on earth a unified spiritual authority of any kind, and in particular that the Catholic Church represented that authority, okay? It was a revolt against the idea, the very idea that Christ had established on earth an authoritative church, and that the Catholic Church was that authoritative church. In other words then, the division that took place, Matt, at the time of the Reformation, and the division that still exists um, up till now, between Protestant and Catholic, was the division between those who continued to embrace the spiritual authority, the united spiritual authority of the Catholic Church, and those who did not, uh, but instead rejected that authority to take their stand, at least ostensibly, on sola scriptura, on the idea that the Bible will will be our sole and sufficient sufficient is an important word there. Infallible rule of faith and practice. Okay, that's what the Reformation was in its essence. Now, why did it happen? Um, And what I mean by that is how is it that so many at that particular point in history, the early 16th century again, how is it that so many came to react against the spiritual authority of the Catholic Church at that time? What were the causes of the Reformation? This is what we're going to begin to look at today. What were, their, what were the causes? Why did it happen? And why did it happen when it happened? Um, some of those listening are going to be thinking, Ken, Matt, what the heck do you mean? I mean, wh- what caused the Reformation? Martin Luther caused the Reformation. We, we all know that. Luther opposed some of the teachings of the church. Luther, on October 31st, 1517, he posted his 95 theses to the, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. One thing led to another and Christendom was busted apart. Luther caused the reformation. And the response that I want to give here is this. Yes. And no. Yes. I would agree that Luther caused the reformation in the sense that Luther struck the match. Um, Luther, if you will, was the spark that set fire to the house of medieval Catholic Europe. But The answer is also, and I think in a more essential way, the answer is no. Luther didn't cause the Reformation, and and here's an image I really want to plant in the minds of all those listening. Luther didn't cause the Reformation any more than a man who strikes a match in a room that is filled with gas causes a fire, okay? Because the reality is the house of late medieval Catholicism was primed for such an inferno to uh, to take place. I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue that the gas was there. That is, the atmosphere was already in the room. In fact, the room was filled with an atmosphere in which a spark could ignite a fire that would burn its way all the way, um, you know, all the way through Christendom. Because in the late 15th, yeah, this is yeah. Uh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say before you, you you launch into to what that was. Some mm-hmm. might say, well. Yes and no, right. We get it. Uh, You know, the church had been going for 1,500 years and, you know, it was bound to explode at some point. But bear in mind also that the church has had a major knockdown dragout with the Arian heresy Mm -hmm. in the 400s. It's had major knockdown dragouts in various points. Francis of Assisi comes in and says, uh, you know, God has told me to rebuild the church. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of reform that goes Mm -hmm. on you know, When Francis comes on the scene, there are all kinds of points at which there is corruption and filth and necessary yeah. issues within the church, and someone comes along and says, hey, no, this is how it's got to be, mm-hmm. and I know that you old church people don't get it, but let's have the Holy Spirit come in here and remind us what this is supposed to be about. This has happened over and over and over and over again in the life of the church. Yes, by the time— Luther brings about something different.
0: By by the time the what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation took place— The Church has been in existence for 1,500 years, and you're entirely right. There have been a number of challenges, and there have been a number of reformations of various sorts, a number of reforms of various sorts. In fact, the Church was always reforming itself, but we're asking, why did this gigantic explosion occur, and why did it happen when it happened? Why did it occur right then? And the point that I'm wanting to make, and we're going to begin to unfold in this episode, is is this. There were a number of historical cultural, societal, spiritual, moral, from every angle. There were a number of forces that were at work at this particular time in history that were driving the world, I would say, I mean, like whipping it, lashing the world and driving it in the direction of what was to occur. In fact, I will go so far as to say that it would have taken a miracle for the Reformation to have not happened then at the time that it happened. And what that means, spoken, I mean, hitting it from another direction, is that Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bucer, Bullinger, all the other reformers, these men were not the cause of the Reformation. These men were created by the historical, cultural, spiritual forces that you and I are going to be looking at. They were caught up by these forces. Um, these men rode these forces like a surfer rides a wave, or like a man might jump on a horse and ride it along. Um, They were not the cause of the Reformation. They were caused by the forces that we're going to look at. If if you're ready, we'll begin to dive in. Are you ready, Matt?
1: All right, let's get into the explosions, (laughs) Ken. Let's have an explosive time. Okay, well, exploding exploding these questions.
0: Okay, explosion number one is this. With the invention of the printing press, talking about the Gutenberg press, in the mid-15th century, there was an explosion of literacy that took place in the decades leading up to the Protestant Reformation. There was a tremendous increase in the number of people who could read. This is where we're gonna start. Now, let me back up to use an illustration because I am an old man, as you know, (laughs) and uh, you are a youngster, a, a mere child as I know.
1: I mean, it's all relative.
0: It's (laughs) all relative. Okay, but I I clearly remember still when I first heard about something called a modem. Okay, I I was talking to someone that I knew back when I was in seminary, 1980 or 81, something like that. And I remember him telling me, Ken, I've got this thing, it's called a modem. He said, what it is, is I, I can plug a phone line into the back of my computer and I can use this phone line to dial up and I can do research in a library. That, that, that's the way he described it. And I'm thinking, what? How in the world? A phone line, and you're doing research in a library? Okay, so I, I, I'm an old guy. So you understand? This is like someone saying to me, "Hey Ken, there's this thing that can fly to Mars, you know, or, or whatever, you know, or this thing that can put you into the fourth hey, dimension."
1: <laughs> you you make fun of me for being a youngster, but bear in mind, Ken. I mean, I. It, there are people watching this much younger than either one of us. I mean, I still come from the era where you did have to rewind your VHS tapes before you returned them to Blockbuster. Okay, good. You know, All and right. you could even get a rewinding machine specifically for this. You know, I, I,
0: and you had cassette tapes. You know,
1: I played like the little Tiger Electronic games in the car. All right, where it was just like, you know, I'm not that crazy young. I had, I played Simon, the Beat Boot Four Color Thingies. I played, you know, I, I understand this. Yeah, but do you I understand oh, a little okay, bit? Okay, but
0: do you remember this. when Pong came out? <laughs> No,
1: because <laughs> no, I'm a child of the 80s. A child of the Not 80s. Not the 70s. I do remember, okay. you know, the Atari.
0: Oh, okay, but, but okay, well, it sounds like we're off the subject, but, but take a moment to think of the revolution that has occurred with the invention of the computer and then the internet, okay? If, if you think about it, the world has radically changed, radically changed. A um, hundred years ago, if Afghanistan was being overrun by the Taliban, if a major earthquake hit Haiti... Um, Even if a major hurricane hit Louisiana, well, you and I might know something about it, but now everyone in the world can watch it real time. They can watch these things happening real time, can see the faces of these people. It's a massive, massive revolution that has taken place and that we're in the midst of still. And, And so take your mind back about six centuries, though, Try to imagine then the revolution, and I use that word advisedly, the revolution that was brought about by the invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century. We're talking about 60, 70 years before the revolution, I mean, before the, the Reformation took place. It was a revolution. It was, it, it was radical. I mean, you and I spend our days now digging ourselves out from underneath piles of paper I go to my mailbox every day and it's just stuffed with paper. You know, I I look at my walls, I was about ready to grab the computer and and change it to where you could see. But my walls are completely covered with books, many of which I will never read. I mean, we live in in a world now in which we are buried in paper. But think about it, it wasn't that way before the Gutenberg Press was invented around 1450 AD. Before this, written materials were extremely scarce they had to be copied by hand. In fact, I've read that it took about two years of hand copying to produce a a single volume of the Bible. Okay. About two years. And by the way, this is why I remember one of the things I heard when I was a Protestant was, oh, the Catholic church never wanted people to read the Bible. They always had just like one Bible in town and they'd have it chained to a podium so that no one could get, get to it. No, they had one Bible in town because it took Two years to copy a Bible to produce one, and it was extremely expensive. So this is why a Bible would have to be taken care of. Why it would have to be chained up?
1: Well, I mean, think about the mass production of information in general that we take for granted mm-hmm. today. I mean, Ken, for uh, you know, for vintage purposes, I have Roy Orbison vinyl on you know my shelf this week. I have a different vinyl every week. Amen. The fact that I can, I mean, and if I had gone back to you in nineteen. 19- Sixty-five and said, "Yeah, can I got tons and tons of these things? I bought them with pocket change at the local thrift store. People were just throwing them out. I mean, this is is think about this concept of like mass production. It's crazy, and and you know the idea that you could even buy a record player for a few dollars at Target, right?
0: Yeah, it's crazy. The changes that take place, but I want you to just sink your teeth mentally into the into what the world would have been like before." the printing press where written materials are scarce, written materials are extremely expensive. And because of that, most people can't read. So with the invention of the printing press, there was an explosion of literacy throughout Catholic Europe. Written materials became available. And because of that, people began to read. People began to learn how to read. Okay. in his biography of John Calvin, very interesting biography written by Oxford professor, Alistair McGrath, who is a Protestant, a well-known Protestant theologian. He describes the situation like this. "In In the early middle ages, the charmed circle of the literate was virtually exclusively clerical. Written materials took the form of manuscripts which had to be painstakingly copied out by hand and were generally confined to the libraries of monasteries on account of their scarcity. With the advent of printing and the development of new paper-making industries, it became possible for an educated layperson to obtain and understand works which hitherto had been the exclusive preserve of the clergy. So imagine it for the first time, and I, and I mean the first time in human history, written materials are becoming available. Single sheets of paper with words printed on it, tracts, pamphlets, treatises, books, and we're becoming available at prices that more and more people could afford to purchase. So along with this, naturally, there is this dramatic increase in the number of people who can read, literacy, an explosion of literacy. And with this, there's a growing confidence. I can read, I can understand, I can make up my own mind about what I'm reading. Okay, and, and, and put this together with this. All of this is happening precisely in the decades leading up to the Protestant Reformation.
1: And to unpack some of the consequences of that, Ken, and we're going to get into it in this next point especially mm-hmm. uh, more, but just to kind of back it up to wrap your mind around that, you can't get a job at McDonald's today. You can't get a minimum wage job almost anywhere uh, that involve, I mean, that doesn't have some sort of reading and literacy tied into it. You have to fill out a job application where you have to write things and be able to read and answer mm-hmm. questions. That, that was not necessary. You know, it's not that people were dumber back then. It's just that literacy wasn't part of that world, right? right you didn't have right. to have literacy in order to, you know, run a farm. Um, it just wasn't necessary in the way that it is now. And the other aspect of this Two, um, you know, and McGrath, uh, who, again, we talked about a lot in our series on justification because mm-hmm. he is kind of the guy, um, where it says, with the advent of printing and development of new papermaking industries, it became possible for an educated layperson mm-hmm. to obtain and understand mm-hmm. these works. Mm-hmm. Look around us now, right? So if then it was educated laypeople who could then, if if you have the Reformation, you know, partly sparked because now educated laypeople have access to, to theological documents then what happens when people who are not as educated but are now literate begin to read have access to these documents you know we we see this because all that has to happen is for anybody to release a statement about anything mm-hmm. in the world and suddenly people who may or may not be experts on well let's say virology and immunology are now suddenly like perceive themselves as experts on the pandemic right
0: on anything a- anything and everything on anything yeah.
1: On on political science, on uh, counterterrorism, on anything, suddenly because we have access to the documents, mm-hmm. access to the sources, mm-hmm. access to a way to write about them, we're all experts, right? And yeah. in some ways, it's a really amazing and beautiful thing that we're all able to read now. But also in some ways, it's kind of a scary thing that we're all able to read and publish now.
0: Um, yeah and I'm thinking and I'm thinking immediately of that quotation that we read I think last week from Martin Luther where he said um, uh, there are as many ideas as there are heads now and, and he, he even says in that quotation he says there is no farmer or no, no there is no rustic so rude that if he imagines anything you know forsooth it must be the the voice of the Holy Spirit and he himself must be a prophet yeah, when you, you talk about a world that is primarily agrarian at that time where a farmer gets up and he begins work very, very early and he works long hours all day long. By the time he comes home, it's dark. He's got a family. He might have 10 children back then. He might have 15. He might have 20 kids. He can't read and there's no reason for him to read. So, so okay, the point is the world is changing radically because of the Gutenberg press and the advent of printing. And the advent i mean and an explosion of literacy beginning throughout catholic europe during the episode, during the the episodes what am I? the episodes of on the journey i mean everybody was watching the on the <laughs> on the journey back then. no during the decades leading up to the reformation which which leads to a second explosion okay there was also during this time an explosion of new theological ideas as literacy spread as the availability of written materials increased throughout catholic europe the need for schools increased, the need for colleges and universities, and all of this is increasing at the same time. Again, let me qu- a quote from Alistair McGrath. The rapid expansion of the university sector throughout Western Europe led to an increased number of theology faculties, professors of theology, with a corresponding increase in the number of theological treatises produced. Then as now, okay, a little self-deprecating humor here on the part of a theologian. He says, then as now, theologians had to do something to justify their existence. Okay, catch the humor. These works, that is the things they wrote, these works frequently explored new ideas. But what was the status of these new ideas? The failure to draw a clear distinction between theological opinions and church teaching, between private opinion and communal doctrine, caused considerable confusion. And now, listen to the confession of this world-renowned Protestant theologian and Oxford scholar, quoting, It is quite possible that Martin Luther may have confused one theological opinion with the official teaching of the church, and he may have initiated his program of reform on the basis of this misunderstanding. (laughs) Okay, in the context... He's making reference to the doctrine of justification, and he's basically saying it's possible that Luther may have been taught a view that wasn't really the church's view, and he may have absorbed that as though it were the church's view, and he may have launched his reformation based on a misunderstanding, okay? But that's another entire subject. The point here is not to explore Luther's education or his mistakes regarding justification. You can see our series on that, our series titled A Damning System of Works Righteousness. But... It's to highlight a a crucial reality, and it's this. As the 16th century was dawning, as Martin Luther, professor of of scripture now at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, as Martin Luther sits at his desk in the early 16th century preparing his lectures on Paul's epistle to the Romans— Or the Psalms or Galatians as about 20 years later, John Calvin is sitting there in the cafes of the Latin Quarter of Paris discussing philosophy, discussing theology with his buddies because he was attending the University of Paris then. A revolution is taking place, okay? These guys are living in the midst of a revolution that's embracing all of Catholic Europe. Europe is witnessing an unbelievable explosion of new ideas in every realm but also in the realm of theology. Books and articles, tracts, pamphlets, exploring every aspect of Catholic doctrine are being printed, they're coming hot off the presses, they're being read everywhere, colleges and universities are beginning to spring up throughout Europe, they're popping up right and left, and as everyone knows, and I, I love to quote this from Mortimer Adler, the great educator, quoting him, the halls of academia are like the halls of a madhouse at midnight. <laughs> I love that image, yeah. and it's it's kind of more true now than maybe ever. But the halls of academia are like the halls of a madhouse at midnight. Everybody's running around. Yeah, everybody's saying everything. New ideas are coming off the press. It's a madhouse.
1: So let's let's take a moment to think about like how you and I used to think about about this idea, right? So for me, with my largely my understanding of the Reformation wasn't really given to me by my denomination other than just maybe a hint at like it happened mm-hmm. and now we're all free to read the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Um, my kind of impression of, of what this all was was, you know, more taken in by my history classes in public school, right? As to, you know, the, the whole printing press, the, you know, springing up of, of new ideas. And I celebrated it, right? I celebrated it because finally we got free of the death grip that, the Catholic Church has been having on theology mm-hmm. and, you know, I wouldn't know, I don't know that I even would have even called it Christianity, but on people's understandings of of God and the Bible, it's, it's, all, it's all been contained by this gigantic draconian force that won't yeah. let anybody think for themselves. And finally, people are able to think for themselves, right? That's how I would have understood it. Uh, now kind of having dug into it a little bit more and realizing this is not merely the spread of a bunch of freedom of ideas, but rather like suddenly like nobody knows, like nobody knows what the real take is, right? Um, just like the anxiety we sort of feel today, like when um, some sort of issue hits in the political sphere and we want to be like, okay, let me find the voice out there that matches up the best with the way that I feel about this.
0: Yeah, there really is. And
1: then I'm going to just latch onto their YouTube channel, Right. I mean, because there's just so many voices, like, how can you know? And this is part of my formation in, um, you know, in communications, because that's Mm -hmm. my degree is in media communications. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, how do we understand the way that we even talk about things? And this was in the late 90s, Ken, to talk about how extremely old and young I am, right? In the late 90s, I'm getting this formation and there's this advent of social media and there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know about what information is going to look like in yeah, the next there, 20 years
0: yeah and there really is a parallel then there really is a practical parallel there for totally us is. i read an article a couple of weeks ago that was saying that in the old days journalists if they were going to name someone in something they wrote it was standard to call that person first and talk to them but now because of social media because when something happens Someone's going to be tweeting about it instantaneously, or it's going to come out on Facebook and all like that. Journalists don't want to take the time anymore to actually check out what they write. So better
1: be but, better to be fast than right. Yeah, so, right? so that's the, that's sometimes that, yeah. because then you at least get the the eyeballs. But the other aspect of it too, Ken, is that we were we were having this conversation, this real live conversation about what's going to happen when you open the floodgates on this. Mm-hmm. Is there going to be the fact that we now have a thousand sources looking at a story and all commenting on it, does that mean we're all now going to be closer to the truth? Or does yeah. it mean now instead that what will happen, and this is us talking in the late 90s, right? That what's more <laughs> likely to happen, we kind of came to the conclusion, is that no, each individual person is going to be able to find a version of it in those thousand sources yeah. that matches most to their own Biases, opinions, moods, and everything else. So that, in a sense, there could be 30,000 different offshoot opinions about what really happened in any situation. Much like you have, you know, the some people throw out the 30,000 number with Protestantism. Yeah. I don't know how you even arrive at any number. Yeah. Uh, you know, but that's what kind of has happened is that we mm-hmm. all have, there's thousands it, and thousands of views on any particular topic. As a result of the social media revolution. So it's yeah. easy to see how, with the advent of the printing press and everything else, there'd be 30,000 theological opinions to choose from. Yeah, and, you do?
0: and when you think of it, if there were no other forces... Okay, we've just named two things so far, you know... Uh, it, but if there were no other forces than the ones... That we, we haven't even we've,
1: gotten to the corruption in the church yet,
0: right? No, not even close to it. Okay, if there were no other forces but the ones that we've named contributing to the rise of the kind of spirit, uh, this intellectual independence, what uh, Hilaire Belloc referred to as a moral atmosphere of um, reaction against a unified spiritual authority. I think that these two alone could have done it because, you know, just do the numbers again. You have a technological revolution brought about by the invention of the printing press. You have resulting from this a flood of written materials exploring every subject under the sun, You have an explosion of new ideas, you have this tremendous growth in literacy, and then you have the rise of universities and colleges and schools throughout Europe, and theological faculties interested in examining all of these new ideas, talking about them, batting them back and forth, debating them, and presenting many of them, in some cases, as true. It doesn't seem all that surprising to me that in such a situation a moral atmosphere characterized as a reaction against united spiritual authority might develop. Um, But as we're going to move on, these weren't the only historical and cultural forces at play. As it turns out, at, at the very same time, an educational philosophy, a particular philosophy of education, was gaining a strong foothold in the colleges and universities of the time and was having its effect. And what I'm referring to here, and we're referring to as explosion number three, is the rise of Renaissance humanism, which we're going to talk about for a bit here. The rise of Renaissance humanism. Now, when you and I hear this word humanism today, Matt, we think most often of secular humanism, even naturalism, materialism, atheism. We're thinking of that philosophy that emphasizes the dignity of man apart from God, the dignity of man um, autonomous man, the ability of human beings to decide all things for themselves without reference to God, or as one of the ancient Greek philosophers put it, man as the measure of all things. That, that's what we think about when we hear the word humanism. But what, what we're talking about here is something very different than that. I'm talking about an educational philosophy that arose out of the 14th century Renaissance in Italy, A, an educational philosophy that was critical of the kind of theology that was being done by the great doctors of the late medieval or the high medieval Catholic Church. Men like Albert the Great, who was St. Thomas Aquinas' teacher, St. Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus. Okay. What we're talking about is an educational philosophy that was critical of the kind of philosophy that these men did. We refer to these men historically as the schoolmen. And we refer to the kind of theology, the sort of theology they were doing as scholasticism or scholastic theology. Well, in the minds of the humanists, scholastic theology was just too philosophical. It was too complicated. It was too abstract, too dry, and it was too downright boring. Okay, it was just boring. They, in fact, are the ones that referred first to Duns Scotus as the dunce it's from his name, Dun Scotus. You know, the guy who has to sit in the corner with the cone-shaped hat on his head, the dunce well, That was a reference to Duns Scotus, one of the great scholastic theologians. The humanists, uh, Matt, they portrayed the scholastic theologians as though they were men who just devoted their entire lives to speculating on pointless bits of trivia, asking questions like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and uh, other such nonsense, okay? Well, This was the view, by the way, from my understanding, they never actually debated that question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But this is the way it was felt to be, okay? In the minds of the humanists, their view was that the official doctors of the Catholic Church were just old white guys, if you want to use, you know, like a common way of thinking about it. You know, put them away. We don't want to have anything to do with them. Go ahead.
1: Well, so so this is an attitude that I held, um, but I wouldn't have held it in the same exact terms because I came from a different era, Mm -hmm. right? There was was this battle going on um, within evangelicalism as I was coming up through, um, Mm -hmm. I'd say, through the 90s and eventually into Bible college and seeing it kind of play out in the Christian bookstore industry. There's this tension, right, between the people who are like, you don't need some egghead in a seminary telling you some systematic theology. You need a relationship with Christ, right yeah yeah and then as a result there was almost an anti-intellectualism in that and so you'd see other people react against it saying you know we've lost the intellectual you know fire Mm -hmm. that really you know helped us understand that that christ didn't come to just save you know our emotions and our moral you know orientation he he came to save our our whole person our love the lord with all your minds too like this big tension in you know a lot of the evangelical circles that i grew up with like and it wasn't you know scholasticism versus humanism it was more like do you feel your relationship with christ or you do you just think about it Right. And so, I mean, this is a tension that's still around today. I mean, even we've within Catholicism today, you find this tension.
0: Yeah. And you're raising an interesting issue because we're going to get to that next week when we talk about Erasmus, because that was another uh, thing that was happening at the time. But yeah, you're exactly right. On the one hand, within Protestantism, we say scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. It's sufficient. And to know scripture, you really, I mean, to, to be able to authoritatively interpret scripture, you really need to know Greek, you need to know Hebrew, you need to know syntax and grammar and all that. And then there's a reaction against that, then is it saying no? You know, it's just me and Jesus, and you don't need any of that. Okay, well, what I want to say here is that, that that there is some truth in what the humanists were saying about the complexity of scholastic theology. If you read Aquinas, you know, I mean, it's beautiful in a way. Uh, it's like listening to a Bach fugue, and I, I I like classical music. I play classical guitar, so okay, I'll use Bach. It's like listening to a Bach fugue, and its beauty, its complexity. Uh, it's fine-tunedness, if you will. Or it's like looking at a Gothic cathedral. It's beautiful in its structure, in its intricacy, in its depth, and its balance. On the other hand, if you've ever tried to open up the Summa and actually read Aquinas, you may find yourself um, sympathizing a little bit with the humanists. Okay? And so for fun, what I did was this. I went to the Summa and I just flipped it open at random. And I looked down and I printed off a paragraph. Here it is. Here's, here's the Summa. Here's Aquinas. I answer that. Just as a thing has being by its proper form, so the knowing power has knowledge by the likeness of the thing known. Hence, as natural things cannot fall short of the being that belongs to them by their forms, but may fall short of accidental and consequent qualities, so that knowing power cannot fail, to, uh, fail in knowledge of the thing with the likeness of which it is informed. For it has been said that sight is not deceived in its proper sensible, but about common sensibles that are consequent to that object, or about accidental objects of sense. Now, you know this is something that's said all the time on the streets, right? It has been said that sight is not deceived, okay, in its proper form. You read this, most people just reading this, you know, their minds are just blown and they're just thinking, what is going on here? Well, this is the the humanist mentality of the time. They were just bored with medieval scholasticism. They wanted to abandon what they viewed as the intellectual stagnation of the Middle Ages They wanted to return to something more pure, quote unquote. And for them, guess what this meant? It meant a return to the original sources. The humanists wanted to drink fresh water from the beautiful, clear, crystal clear streams of scripture and the early church fathers. In fact, their cry was, at the time, was ad fontes, to the sources, or back to the fountains, is what it literally referred to. This is how they wanted to learn their theology, not by listening to the doctors of the church. And so you have another factor, another ingredient thrown in here, Matt, where those men who were considered to be the official doctors of the church had developed theology by the time of the high middle ages to such a degree that you have these massively complicated, important I mean, much of Aquinas is beautiful, okay? But massively complicated, important structures of theology worked out. And coming out of the Italian Renaissance with its focus on on the human, on the human, you know, look at the paintings of the Renaissance. Look at, you know, they had a new idea. The humanists wanted to drink from the Old and New Testaments. That is, the, those who were theologians wanted to. They wanted to drink from the early church fathers. They didn't want to listen to the doctors of the church anymore. The educational philosophy at the time was becoming, this educational philosophy was becoming extremely popular in the colleges and the universities where young people were saying basically, yeah, you know, to the devil with the scholastics. Let's just open our Bibles and read them.
1: Well, what's funny, Ken, is that this is such a cyclical thing within society and within Christianity and within even Protestantism, Um you know, of course, Catholicism embraces, at the end of the day, the both and, mm-hmm. right? It embraces. I mean, even Thomas Aquinas embraced the both and because the same guy who wrote the Summa Theologia wrote some of the most poetic and, uh, I would say, you know, He's beautiful heart heart rending hymns about you know uh, the Panis Angelicus, the Tantum Ergo, and some mm-hmm. of these others that mm-hmm. are some of the most beloved hymns of the church because they're just so moving and poetic. The same guy who is writing
0: about you know whatever, whatever it is I read, whatever it is I read. right? right.
1: (laughs) But, you know, I mean, think about the, uh, well, I'll just, I'll read to you a tweet. I won't attribute it because it's, it's a tweet that was, it came from a a Baptist seminary professor and it's been, it's been the source of some theological debate on Twitter over the past few days prior to when we recorded this. I'll just read you the tweet to give you, to capture the Mm -hmm. sentiment of 2021, Mm -hmm. to make you think about what you were just describing you know, back in 1517. So this is what the professor says. He says, if you think highbrow Thomism, sourced in large part from analytic theology, Aristotle and Dionysius, is going to preach in countless Baptist churches driven by love for the sufficiency of Scripture, I have a summer retreat in Siberia to sell you at a low, low price, right? Is His argument is mm-hmm. people in Baptist churches, they want to hear the love of the Scriptures. They don't want to hear your theological mumbo-jumbo, Right? Yes. It doesn't matter necessarily yeah. whether or not the, the the Tomism is true. Like, the people I'm talking to, they don't want to hear about that, right? And essentially, that's kind of what's going on. I mean, think about you, Ken. Were you saved because someone handed you Treatise on theology, or are you part of the born again Christian thing that was like that's where the juice was? Oh yeah, I, right. That's I read where people were I, getting excited.
0: Yeah, I was reading Athanasius' uh treatise on the on the um, incarnation. On the incarnation. <laughs> no, that's right. how. That's how. You know what is interesting though too. Um, one of my professors uh, of historical theology when I was in seminary was Richard Muller, who has who is one of the world experts on Protestant scholasticism, and what he says is, whereas Protestantism began with Luther and Calvin and them, you know, going back to the Bible again and going to the early church fathers and and kind of weaving out a fresh theology of their own, within a hundred years, Protestantism also had. Had become scholastic, and the great theologians of the Protestant world were scholastic theologians, where they had worked out the Reformed faith in as much detail and uh, fine tuning as Aquinas and them did at the time.
1: Oh, and and you get into Neo-Calvinism, and Neo-Calvinism is every bit as yeah. mind-bending as Aquinas, yeah. Although not of your bit is right, you know. Okay, but so that's another. That's another. So story. again, I
0: know this is repetitive, but we need to get our minds into the situation. So again, do the numbers. And just let your mind rest on this. Okay, imagine the printing press is invented. Suddenly, it's possible to print things. <laughs> and it's possible to print things that had never been printed before. And to print small things, you know, page length, two pages in length, little tracts, little pamphlets, larger items, treatises, books. And people are able to buy them more people than ever could before, and therefore literacy begins to really expand throughout Europe at the time, and then new ideas begin to uh, arise, new ideas about every subject under the sun, but also new ideas about the Bible, new ideas about Christianity and theology and what's being taught. Because of the increase in literacy, schools are needed in a way that they weren't before. Colleges begin to pop up, universities, begin to pop up everywhere, and they're Catholic universities, but within them there are faculties of theology that are young people, younger men, who are reading these pamphlets and reading these books, getting excited about new ideas, beginning to bat them around to debate them and to present them to their students as true. And then at the very same time, lo and behold, an educational philosophy gaining foothold in particular, in the universities, which basically was saying the official theologians of the Catholic Church are abstract, they're impractical, they're boring, let's bypass them, let's leave them behind, let's allow them to, you know, die, you know, and let's return to the pure, simple study of the Word of God and of the Father's. And all of this, you know, these points we've made today, all this is happening precisely in the decades leading up to the explosion that we refer to as the Protestant Reformation, changing everything. And and, and now, to the main complaint that you hinted at a little bit earlier, too, someone could say this point, well, what are you guys saying? Are you guys saying that uh, the invention of the printing press was a bad thing, or <laughs> are, are you saying that literacy is a bad thing that it'd be better if no one could read or it'd be better if no if we didn't have books it'd be better if we didn't have colleges and universities i mean when i look at some colleges and universities now i think yes but no i mean these things in in and of themselves are all good things literacy is a good thing the ability to print is a good thing the availability of printed materials and books is a good thing wanting in fact to interact to interact directly with scripture and, the, Holy, and the, the early fathers, this is a good thing too. These are all good things. And so all I'm saying here, I want to be very clear in, in what I'm presenting. All I'm saying here is that historically, these amounted to ingredients that mixed with some other ingredients, historical, cultural, societal, moral, spiritual, we're going to get to that, that mixed with some other ingredients, I think we can see could have taken their place in creating an atmosphere of reaction, an atmosphere of individualism, an, at, an atmosphere of reaction against the claims of authority of a united church, that is, the Catholic Church.
1: The Catholic Church, which we have been talking about in rather abstract uh, terms this week because we haven't talked about the fact that the uh, the thing that's about to get blown up is corrupted— and full of rotten clergymen and full of bad actors Mm -hmm. uh, who are operating fairly anonymously because there hasn't been a printing press or there hasn't been a marketplace of ideas and there hasn't been a whole bunch of people out there saying, look at how bad these guys are, right? So we haven't even talked about the failures on the part of church leadership.
0: We're going to talk about that. will eventually
1: get reacted to by these triple explosions.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that next week. We're definitely going to get into that next week. But, you know, step by step by step. In fact, when I think about the situation, one kind of analogy that comes to mind is think think in terms of what happens when our kids become teenagers. Um, You know, uh, when our kids begin to read for themselves, they begin to think for themselves. Maybe when they go off to college and they face professors that have completely different worldviews than the one that they have learned from their parents. Um, what I'm saying is what we're saying here is, is pretty natural really at this point that with the invention, of the printing press with reading, with literacy, with printed materials, with the air availability, the ability to buy them with this humanist philosophy of saying, let's go back ad fontes, let's go back to the sources. It was this very kind of a natural thing that was happening at that time that though mixed with other ingredients, which are very important that we're going to get to next week. Um, caused the explosion that, well, you, you know, you kind of hit a bottom line. If the church at, at the time, if the clergy had been holy and had been extremely knowledgeable and holy and had been teaching people the Word of God, even these things might not have caused a reformation. But when you mix that in, boom.
1: Yeah. Boom. And again, it's easier for us to understand the impact of the... uh the printing press uh, and its impact on media for those of us who's witnessed the impact of digital and social media mm-hmm. and how that's gone kaboom in our own day and how it's fragmented uh, society in so many ways. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's important. You can't really understand the reformation until you understand all those things uh, that were going on. It's not as simple as someone was selling indulgences and Martin Luther didn't like it. It's a lot more complicated than that. And hopefully, hopefully we've gotten into a little bit of that. Um, and hopefully it's, helped you know, clarify some of the points that you yourself may have been confused on as a viewer or listener to On the Journey with Matt and Ken. But in the meantime, we got to wrap it up and we'll be back again next week uh, with another part of the series on what the Reformation was and why it happened. Please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. That's the website for the Coming Home Network, but especially come and check out our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I are in there mixing it up, yep. having chats with people just like yourself. So, come say hello. Okay. Okay. Until next time. Yeah, I'll see you,
0: Matt. Bye-bye. Take care. You too.